Thank you, Kim. We are looking tonight at, uh, we're continuing our study of the Baptist faith and message. This is the um, statement of faith for the Southern Baptist Convention. And we get now to Article 5 of the, um, <laughs> my goodness, uh, of this statement of faith. I'm sorry, my mind is, is going blank tonight. A little bit of history might be helpful before we enter into this one. Um, in uh, Baptist really kind of started around 1609. So to set the stage for you now, there were movements that were kind of sort of halfway Baptist, but not really before that. The Anabaptists go back a lot farther than that. That in 1609, it was the it was the time of English separation. Um, this idea that the Anglican Church, the Church of England, was not being faithful to Scripture, and what should we do about it? The, uh, so there were Englishmen who, who felt like the Church of England was not redeemable at all. In or out of the... Uh, there's no way you could, within the church, redeem it. Uh, and so they sought to separate themselves. They became known as the Separatists because of that. Now, you know, an appropriate name, right? Among these groups were Puritans, for example. The Puritans believed that this was this Church of England is too far gone. We've got to get out of it so that we can hold church the proper kind of way. It wasn't just a matter of, of doing this instead of that or singing more of this type of music rather than that kind of music. It was some serious doctrinal issues. Uh, Puritans were one group. Another group would eventually become the Baptists. They didn't quite know where to go, though. I mean, it's not exactly uh, uh, tons of tons of churches around at that point. In England, there was the Church of England, and then there were no other recognized churches. So what do you do when you want to break off from the main church because you don't think they're faithful to Scripture? Well, you gotta you got to somehow start your own church. Um, what ended up happening was a guy named Thomas Helwes went to Holland. He ended up getting in with a group of Mennonites, which were a type of Anabaptist, um, and eventually became convinced that for him to be a genuine believer would involve him being baptized as a believer. He came to believe in believer's baptism as the only way to go. You can't be baptized as an infant. That doesn't, I mean, what is that going to do? You're, you're a you're an infant, right? It, it's not even a baptism. It's a sprinkling. It's you don't dunk a baby underwater, right? Unless you're Orthodox, and then that's <laughs> that's a whole other a whole other branch there. So they um, so he he becoming convinced of this, and working with this group of believers, he decided that it was time that he be baptized as a believer. He had been baptized as an infant. Everybody was so. He went to these Mennonites, and they baptized him. Unfortunately, Thomas Helwes was the type of guy that was always questioning things, and so he ended up questioning whether that baptism was good enough, so he baptized himself. And then he baptized, um, uh, oh, goodness. I think I've got names mixed up. I'm sorry. Smith was the guy. Sorry. Thomas Helwes was his partner that he then baptized as soon as he had gotten baptized. So John Smith, I want to say his name was, uh, uh, who did that. I'm so sorry about that. It's been a little while since I read up on this. 
Fast forward a few years, you know, 30, 35 years, you really have these two different branches of Baptist churches. There's not very many in either branch. There's only like two or three churches total. So uh, there is the Smith-Helwes Church um, that is very Arminian in its doctrine. Salvation's free for all who will accept Jesus, um, that the, the atonement is generally available to everyone. They would teach that um, you can lose your salvation. That was one of the uh, one of the tenets of Arminianism. Another one was that man, through, through God's help, uh, man could choose to follow him. So man makes the choice, but it's God kind of providing the leeway for man to make that choice. It's what Arminians call prevenient grace. That's, that's along that line. There was another church, though, um, that had started in the 1640, or in the, yeah, 1640s, um, called the JLJ Church after its first three pastors. That church was much more Calvinistic in its doctrine. So they wouldn't say that man could choose to follow God, even with a little bit of God's grace. No, they would say that man is completely and totally depraved and unable to follow God at all. Um, they, they would say that you could not lose your salvation, that, 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 they would teach what's, what you would call the perseverance of the saints. They would teach that the atonement was only limited to those that God elected and that that election was not based on God knowing in advance that you were going to put faith in him. That election was based on just God's sovereign choice of I, I'm choosing this person to be saved. Okay, So even within the first 40 years of Baptist life, the first two Baptist churches One's Calvinist, one's Arminian. Does this sound kind of familiar? Even today, we have a wide spectrum within Baptist life. And so one of the problems that comes out when you're trying to make a confession of faith that all Baptists everywhere can generally ascribe to, how do you make it in such a way that you talk about these doctrines and you... you uh, explain a little bit, you, you detail a bit what the scripture says about it, but you still leave room for people with completely different views of salvation where they can both say, yeah, I can agree with that. It's a difficult thing. When um, this, the JLJ church um, in 16, well, in the early, in the 1640s, shortly after it, had found, it was founded, it began to subscribe to, uh, there were a couple of those churches around um, kind of in that vein, and they built a confession of faith. Now we call it the First London Confession. The First London Confession was a good start, but in 1689, they made a second London Confession that would be very important. Fast forward a little bit. Let's get into America. Philadelphia, the center of Baptist life in the very early 1700s. In fact, the first Baptist church was founded in Philadelphia. The first association was founded in Philadelphia. The first confession of faith by American Baptists was made in Philadelphia. And they almost took the six, 1689 Second London Confession at verbatim. They just added a little bit, made a couple of minor changes, and that was the Philadelphia Confession. All right? So for about 120 or so years, that's the only confession that American Baptists have. It's not even an American Baptist confession. It's an English Baptist confession that we adopted. Interesting enough, uh, the person who first printed the Philadelphia Confession, Benjamin Franklin, 
That's, I thought that was kind of interesting. I saw the fascist model of the, uh, the uh, page, the front page, the cover page. And there it says, published by B. Franklin. Yeah, that was him. So not only was he discovering electricity and, and one of the founding fathers of the country, he was also um, uh, influential in uh, Baptist life, at least in printing the first confession. I thought that was kind of neat. In 1830, the, the Baptist Convention of New Hampshire decides it's time for us to look at a statement of faith that we can call our own. In that area of the country, the, the, the 1689 London Confession, the Second London Confession was very Calvinistic, but in that area of the country, now they, there's a large Arminian influence. And so a lot of the churches don't hold to the strict Calvinism, but they're not Arminians either. We needed something that would describe who we are at that point. We thought they thought, and so so they they got a couple of folks together into a committee because that's what Baptists do best. We form committees, and they asked they asked this committee, look at it, draft something up, and let's see it. They presented it before um, the convention. The convention never voted on it. They sent it back to committees, back to the board, and and worked around with it a bit. Finally, in January of 1833, the New Hampshire Confession is born, takes some of the 1689, moderates it to a more central position. Why do I tell you all this? Well, I'll tell you all this because in Baptist life, there has been these two sides consistently, almost from the very beginning. This Calvinistic push, and in fact today, there, there's a large push of Reformed Baptists that hold to very Calvinist doctrine, um, the kind of doctrine you would find in Presbyterian churches. There's also Baptists that are not really Arminian, but they're nowhere near full Calvinistic either. They're much more moderate in their tone. And so this, this back and forth, this, this, well, we can't just say that it's all up to God because that leads us away from missions. This hyper-Calvinism is what took that uh, Reformed Baptist sort of tradition from the JLJ church and almost made it extinct in England because they weren't evangelizing. It took William Carey in the modern missions movement to finally break that edge of the church off of such a hyper-Calvinism that they were willing to say, okay, even if God is sovereign, he's still given us a mission to do and we still have to proclaim the gospel. We've been fighting with this and struggling with it for 400 years. So we're going to solve it tonight. No, I'm just kidding. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the Baptist faith and message. The Baptist faith and message comes from that New Hampshire line. So it's very moderate. It seeks to balance out these various sides. Because what's definitely true is that we need help from God if we're going to accept him. But what's also definitely true is that we have to put faith in Christ. We can, we can try to figure out all of the details. And we're going, to, we're going to dig a little bit into the scriptures and we're going to see this balance happen. But there is a tension in the Bible and one of the things that, that I appreciate about the Baptist church as a whole is that we don't just try to force our system on the Bible. We constantly look back at the scripture and say, what does God's word say? So as we're looking at this document, we're going to look at uh, uh, the way these framers have put these doctrines. And then we're going to go to scripture and we're going to see, yeah, God leaves attention there. And that's okay. Well, I mean, what of life have you figured out yet? Really? 
about as much as you can say, I haven't figured it out. <laughs> We're not there yet, right? Amen? This is, um, there's two paragraphs in this article. This is Article 5. It's called God's Purposes for Grace. Listen to the first paragraph. Election is the gracious purpose of God, according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. So the first thing that we talk about when we look at this article is we talk about election. And we find that we're elected by grace. Now, we think of an election, we think you go to the ballot box, you choose the candidate you want. The candidate is vying for your vote. I, I want you to vote. Vote for me, right? And so you go in, and in my jurisdiction, we are very, very worried about security. So we put everybody at the same table, and we put up a piece of cardboard between them. <laughs> in some places, the way I used to vote, um, when I was down in Mobile, they didn't do that. They had booths, and you had a curtain behind you, and you pulled the curtain. So nobody could see what you were voting. Of course, the curtain stopped about right here, so anyone could peek in and say, hey, how you doing? You know, whatever. But that was secure, you know. Um, anybody remember Florida 2000? Pregnant chads? Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways uh, voting takes place, but we all think of it in generally the same way. Some candidates are vying for your vote. You get the choice. Once you make the choice, the votes are counted, and we figure out who the winner is, right? Okay? Simple enough, right? That's not biblical election, okay? So let me just say, first of all, you don't have to campaign before God. Isn't that a relief? We are elected by grace. Now, Exactly how do we understand this election? That's part of the issue, right? Which is why this document does not go into that. Because <laughs> if it tries to describe that election in much more detail, we're going to lose everybody. But we do see, very first thing it says is that election is the gracious purpose of God. You cannot separate this doctrine of election from God's grace. You cannot make it solely about sovereignty. You cannot make it solely about foreknowledge. Fact is, it includes all of that, but especially grace. It is God's gracious purpose. And these four words that are used here, regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, glorifies, those sound familiar? Yeah, they were the last, last week. We talked about the, the article on salvation. That's how that article breaks it down. Talks about those four elements of salvation. So it's almost like they're trying to do this, certainly, you know? It's almost like they're thinking consistently. God's gracious purpose. And the funny thing is, this isn't really original with us. The 2000 committee didn't have to reinvent the wheel. This was almost verbatim from the New Hampshire Confession. But even more than that, you find it in Scripture. Look in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. We're going to have, there are so many different verses. I'm not going to make you turn to all of them. But I want you to see this one. Just because of the number of words we're going to use, we're, we're using some bigger words here, so I want you to see it with your eyes while you hear it with your ears. First Peter 1, start in verse 2. It starts in the middle of a sentence, but, um, but just flow with me here. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, did you catch all that? There's all four of those points there. Regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification. They're all right there. We didn't have to reinvent the wheel. God told us in his word just what he was doing. Now, now it takes a bit of study and it takes a bit of patience and it takes a lot of prayer, guidance from the Holy Spirit, but it's right there. Romans 8, we talked about last week, we mentioned this passage. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God doesn't quit halfway through this process. He sees it through to the very end. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. Right? That's, that's what the scripture says of God. And what he's saying here is that, that God's process of saving us from our sin is not an incomplete process. It's not a process that God starts and says, never mind, this isn't worth it. It's not a process that God gets almost to the end and then quits, then fails, then gives up. This is something that he's going to see through to the very end. In fact, it's so sure Paul writes all of these in past tense. They, in his mind, they've already happened. There's no need to doubt it. It's guaranteed. So we have this election, this God's purpose of grace. We're elected by grace. We're not elected because we deserve to be. We're elected because God wants us to. Now, you might say, well, so basically he forces us, right? No. The very next line tells us that election is consistent with man's free will. Listen to it again. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. In other words, man's free will does not buck against God's salvation. This is one of the great things about God. You see it all throughout scripture. God uses man's will to enact his will. They're consistent. Pharaoh says, no, you can't go. God says, that's exactly what I wanted you to say. Doesn't matter that he thinks he's opposing God. It doesn't matter if he thinks that he's going to challenge God. Doesn't matter. God's good with that. In fact, God even told Moses ahead of time, hey, he's not going to let you go. So I'm going to show my works. He already knows it's going to happen. And he's already willed it to happen. So when it happens, it's no surprise. In fact, it's just what he wants. God, I don't know how he does this, okay? I don't how he allows us to make the choice, but still is in control of the outcome. The only thing I can figure is it's, it, God is playing some kind of four-dimensional chess where he is making moves specifically to get you to make certain moves. And no matter what move you make, he's got an answer. Not only does he have an answer for it, he's got the perfect answer. That's the only thing I can figure. And I, I know that's not a perfect analogy, but I, all I just imagine is God is some grandmaster chess player or something, and, and he is, he's got it all worked out. And no matter what we do, God is always in control. But 
even saying that, that doesn't mean that he's forcing us. It doesn't mean that he's, he's got our arm and an arm lock behind our backs making us cry uncle. He's not forcing us to do this. He's allowing us to do this. Now, therefore, Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God is talking to Moses, telling him, this is what you tell all the people of Israel. Verse 7, so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. You hear what's happening here? God has spoken to Moses. Moses come down. He speaks to the elders. But did you notice the language? It doesn't say he forced it down their throats. It doesn't say that, that he pounded it into their thick skulls. Kind of wish he had because the rest of the book of Exodus is him wishing that he had pounded it into their thick skulls. No, he sets it before them. Almost like you set a dinner plate in front of someone else that you're serving, hoping that they'll like it, that they'll accept it. It's interesting that that kind of language is used. Those who stress the sovereignty of God ought to realize that God sets his words before people. He doesn't force them on people. But yet, verse 8 shows us people have this choice. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. Man, I wish that were true. But they choose to accept it. It's set before them, they choose to accept it. God's sovereignty isn't denied in this passage. But what we see is God allowing man the agency to choose to follow him. However, you say, well, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's, that's just God dealing with Israel. I mean, there's lots of Old Te uh, New Testament passages that, that just show us that God's in control, right? Well, how about the words of Jesus? Matthew 21. He tells this story. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go work in the field today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? It's interesting. It's an interesting scenario. You go to one son and he says no. And then later he decides, mm, you know what? Yeah, I'll go ahead and do it. You go to one and he says, sure, I'll do it. And you don't see him. Yeah, he runs off. Who did the will of the father? Well, let's take a straw poll. How many of you think the first one? He said no and then went. How many of you think he did the will of the father? Yeah. Anybody think the second one did? Well, that's what they said. When Jesus asked, who did the will of the Father? They, his audience said the first one. Then Jesus says, listen, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Wait a minute, what? Where did that come from? Keep reading, verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. In other words, I went to these terrible folks over here who refused to do my will at first, and then they said, you know what? No, I'm, I'm seeing what he's doing through John. I'm going to believe. But these people over here that say that they believe in God aren't. They refuse. Who has the choice? Is it the Father? No, it's the Son. They make the choice. Now, one of them makes the wrong choice at first and then turns to make the right choice. One of them makes the right choice in words but never follows it through. But they both had the choice. 
Election is consistent with man's free will, but election is also consistent with God's sovereignty. This is where it gets hard, because if it was only about free will, then we could say, all right, we know exactly what we believe. But then he has to throw in this whole bit about being sovereign over all things. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You know, when he talks to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Do you, do you make the sea, do you set limits for the sea and say, here and no further? Did you anoint the heavenly host to shine in the night and yet appoint one to rule over the day? What's crazier? He makes light before he makes anything that makes light. Day one, light, boom. Light says, what do you need? Day four, the sun, moon, and stars. Where was the light coming from? Maybe the same place that it comes from in Revelation 22, when that new Jerusalem is at 21 and 22, when that new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and it doesn't have any night anymore because God's presence is the light for that city. God has this sovereign reign over everything. So sovereign that when he speaks, things come into existence just to obey him. Genesis chapter 12, we see God's sovereignty in the life of Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, what you might not make the connection with is in chapter 11. Chapter 11 sees a whole bunch of people getting together in Babel, trying to build this tower in order to do the very thing that God is promising to do for Abram. Now, how can God make those kinds of promises? Because he's sovereign enough to make them happen. You see, if we had a powerful God that couldn't control circumstances, he might be really good at making his will happen, but it wouldn't be perfect. If we had a God who had no power whatsoever, but had all knowledge, well, that doesn't do you any good if you can't put it into practice, do you? I know exactly what I need to do, but I can't do that. I don't, I'm not strong enough. I'm not powerful enough. You see, we have a God who is both powerful enough and who's sovereign enough. I will make you a great nation. They wanted to be a great nation. But God tells Abraham, I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. They wanted a name for themselves. No. And God says, look, I'm going to do that for you. I'll make you a blessing. They weren't even thinking about that. All they wanted to do was lift up themselves. They weren't worried about anybody else. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a sovereign God who's just simply saying, hey, I'm going to make it all happen. You just follow me. Election is consistent with God's sovereignty. That passage in Romans, how did it start? For those whom he foreknew, he already knew. He already knew. <laughs> but you're going to get past God. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes we act like God doesn't I just put, if I just put the cover over my head, if I just wear this hat, and I wear my coat kind of up high, and I pull my sleeves up like this, and I'll just kind of hide from God. No, that doesn't work. He's all. He's sovereign over all. That's the great thing about this election. It balances both. It's sovereign election that cooperates with man's will. And before you start to get too big-headed and say, oh, well... I'm one of the elect. God has saved me, so I am one of the elect. Election produces humility, not pride. 1 Corinthians 1, 
For consider your calling, brothers. He's going to really pep them up now. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. All right, uh, so I'm looking out at y'all. Y'all got pretty low IQs. Y'all, y'all are just, y'all, y'all don't have any clout whatsoever. And some of you, some of you, I, I, I think some of you probably were raised in a barn. So I'm not going to get on to you if you leave the door open. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus who came, who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord I I, I remember that that passage from Jeremiah let not the wise man boast in his wisdom let not the strong man boast in his strength let not the rich man boast in his riches but let him who boasts boast in this that he knows me that I am the Lord (laughs) just because you're elected doesn't mean you have the right to brag about it. Unless you're bragging about him. Because it ain't about you. It's about him. Not only are we elected by grace, this article points us to the fact that we are preserved by grace. Listen to the second paragraph of the Baptist Faith and Message, Article 5. All true believers endure to the end. Boy, that's a sermon in and of itself. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by his spirit will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, whereby they grieve the spirit, impair their graces and comforts, and bring reproach on the cause of Christ and temporal judgments on themselves, yet they shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. This is a distinctively Calvinistic doctrine. But it is a doctrine that almost every Baptist church accepts. You might have heard it called once saved, always saved. The perseverance of the saints. It's one of the few places, and and in reality, the early Arminians didn't quite know what to do with this doctrine. They thought, we don't know, we need to search the scriptures more. They made a document called the Five Articles of the Remonstrance. This was back in the 1500s, uh, late 1500s. And they weighed out all this stuff. And they said, you know, we just don't know. We need to study the scriptures more. But by the time we get to Baptist, Baptist come to realize that the scriptures say we are kept in the faith. That is if we're in the faith in the first place. First John 2, they went out from us. He's talking about folks that were there in the body, that were there in presence, but were n- they left, they gone. They, we don't know what happened to them. They, they have forsaken the way. Listen to what he says. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. In other words, the fact that they left is evidence that they were never really part of this body to begin with. When you have someone who is a part of a church and who is involved in the church and who is doing all the right things and then suddenly they're gone and you never hear from them again. You never see them again. You you try to call them. You try to talk to them. We've had folks here since I've come here that have started here and they seem like they were good to go. They were involved and yet they were gone 
Sometime later, what are we to think? They were never really a part of this church, even if they were volunteering, even if they were helping, even if they were on the membership roll, they never really planted themselves here. Even more true of the true church. See, we're just a visible church. We're, we're a congregation. We're what people can see of the church. There's a church invisible. All genuine believers in the body of Christ. We don't talk enough about this as Baptists. Good thing the next article is on the church so we can really hash this out. I love it when I can do that, when I can plug the next week in. This idea of perseverance happens because we really are part of the body to begin with. They were here, but then they're gone because they were never really here. No, they, they went out, John goes on to say, that it might become plain that they were not of us. God has a way of sorting the wheat from the tares. Sometimes he does it pretty quickly weeks or months. Sometimes it takes them a little longer. It takes them a few years. Sometimes you never really even know, but he'll get it all sorted out. Jesus points us to this doctrine of persevering in the faith in John chapter 10. He, he says, I'm the good shepherd, right? He goes on to say, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So what we have is that Jesus has the sheep in his hand and the Father has the sheep in his hand. So if you want to get a Christian unsaved, you got to get them out of the hands of the Father and the Son and I'm pretty sure the Spirit's not going to go along with that. We are saved by God's grace. And God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm pretty sure I don't have to worry about screwing up to ruin salvation. Now, that doesn't mean I can just screw up. Are, are we to sin that grace may abound? By no means. No. Let me translate that better. No! <laughs> right? No, we're not to do that. What are you thinking? No, don't do that. We don't do that. Because God's grace ought to, ought to make us live differently than that. We don't just live to see what we can get away of. We don't just inch up closer and closer to the line and maybe start to straddle it and maybe cross just a little bit to see if mom and dad will get on to us. That's what toddlers do. No, no, we mature in our faith. We stay away from the line because we don't even want to go over there anyway. All that mess? No way. No, thank you. I'm happy right here next to my Lord and King. I'm happy serving him. Peter's first epistle, we read this earlier, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven. Wait, wait, imperishable. Okay, so the inheritance isn't going to spoil. It's not like food with a best by date. I, I, the other day at work, I found a pack of eggs we, we had that went out of date, that was going to go out of date this week. And it had been pushed back behind other things. By the way, rotate your food in your fridge if you've got more than one of the same item. Rotate them out, you know, use the oldest one first. Um, it just got stuck back there. People would put things in front of it, and so it just got lost back there. Thankfully, I found it before the day that it expired. So we, so we were able to use most of it. We ended up having to throw away a little bit, but not much. Um, but it was, it, it, that's not, that's not... The inheritance, it's not, it doesn't have a use-by date on it. It doesn't rot or mold. It doesn't go bad, spoil. It's undefiled. You can't soil it. 
mar it or maim it. It's unfading. It doesn't wear off over time. Any of you have black clothes, you know that after you wash it a bunch, the black just ain't so black anymore. You got white clothes, you know. After you wear it a bunch, that white undershirt don't stay white, does it? No matter how much bleach you use, it does not stay white. That's not the inheritance that God gives us. No, 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 no. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And it's kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power, I love this, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Man, you know, when I when I started the series, I thought, oh man, this is going to be good. I'm going to be able to really teach theology and really lay out the basics of our faith. And then I hit something like this, and it just, wow, just overwhelms me. 2 Timothy 1.12, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. Or if you're singing the hymn, believe it. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. James, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, even though we can't lose our salvation, we're still commanded to look like we're saved. There are still consequences for sin. God tells Ezekiel, if I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Oh boy, that that adds a whole new impetus, doesn't it? Wait a minute, wait a minute. If God tells me to tell someone his truth, and I don't, it's, it's on me? Yeah. Just a few verses later, God tells that same prophet to say this to the people. The righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, it shall not fall by it. He shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness. And the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. In other words, righteousness and sinfulness are incompatible. If we are saved by God's grace, we cannot continue to live lives of sin. We can't. He will not allow it to happen. It cannot stand. At the same time, if we are perfectly content in our sin, that's what's keeping us from accepting God's offer of grace. No matter what we say with our lips, the two are incompatible. Now, at one time you walked in darkness, but now you're a light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. God has saved us from our sin. Live like it. God has elected us by his grace. And he preserves us in his grace. So let's live graceful. Father, help us to be full of grace and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.